welcome to Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Mark Shea, and we are here today as we are here, well, you know, whenever I put these podcasts up, <laughs> uh, <laughs> whenever the spirit moves me, uh, we're here today, and I, I got a special guest, because uh, we, we, we agreed to do a, a sort of a hostage exchange. So, uh, so I just did his podcast, uh, and we will we will give you the particulars on where to find that uh, in a little bit. Um, And now he's doing my podcast, so you know, it's uh, you're getting us in stereo today. Uh, My guest today is uh, (laughs) uh, Mr. Scott Stantis. Scott Stantis. Uh, is the author of a cartoon strip called Prickly City that you can, you can, well, you just Google Prickly City. I mean, how many Prickly City combinations of words can you find out there? And make sure you spell out prickly, though, believe me, because then you're beginning ads you don't want. Oh, yeah, that would be bad. Uh, (laughs) hmm. Yes, Prickly City uh, is his cartoon strip, (laughs) and he is also a, uh, he's also an editorial cartoonist. For the Chicago Tribune, which is like a real newspaper. It's not like one of those, you know. Shoppers or dubious sites. This is, yeah, this is like a real thing. Yeah. And uh, so, and he's, uh, he's uh, uh, one of my favorite uh, editorial cartoonists out there. Thank you. Got his head screwed on straight. And uh, so I just thought, you know. How many times can you get a cartoonist on my podcast? And, this is a uh, good question. And not just any cartoonist, but a Catholic editorial. Yes, cartoonist. there are. There are. We do exist. You know, once the plains was black with us, but then the Protestants came. Yeah. Like, anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or something. Yes. Uh, there, uh, Steve Breen in San Diego at the Union Tribune. Uh, is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. He's deeply Catholic. They are, okay. in fact, so Catholic. He and his wife are having their eighth child. That you know, and I gotta say, I mean, one of the things that really that really stands out is it just how should you put it? Um, people don't normally say to themselves, "My key to riches is to become a cartoonist." <laughs> No, uh, that that used to not be true. I am old. I, actually, I am exactly uh, four and a half months older than you. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. But we're, we're, He's been reading yes. my Wikipedia entry. That's <laughs> yes. Did that one right? <laughs> Either that or he's a stalker. Uh, he, he knows the day <laughs> I was born. Can't you be both? <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so so back in the day, you could. Conceivably, the cartoonist who won the first Pulitzer here at the Chicago Tribune, a guy named John T. McCutcheon, he won it in 1930. And he was actually making a bigger salary than the publisher of the Chicago Tribune. Really? Which is, I I think okay. that's a policy they should bring back. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. John, John, John made so much money, he literally bought an island in the, in the Bahamas. Really? That's how much money he made. So, yeah, you used to be you could make a lot of money. There's guys like uh, online cartoonists. The Oatmeal does quite well. Uh, Cyanide and Happiness does well. Um, okay. I think it's XKMC or CM or XKCD. XKCD. A guy named Randall Monroe. By the way, if you're just if you're looking for a really fun book, 
uh, Randall Monroe did a book called What If, and it's uh, it's scientific answers to absurd questions. Oh, so like uh, if you put all the raindrops together in an average thunderstorm into one gigantic raindrop, uh, and then drop that on an urban population, what would happen? And he describes <laughs> the really quite horrific effects <laughs> of a gigantic raindrop. <laughs> And uh, stuff like that, you know. Well, and I have to say, I mean, this may not have been terribly Christian. Well, it was the, 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 the my part. It was very Christian. Is that I my kids told me about his strip many years ago. Uh, I bookmarked it, fell in love with it, and I had and I wrote to him saying, "Hey, Randall, I, I love your work. I think it, it's really fantastic." And he wrote back. I said and explained who and who I was and he wrote back a really kind of nasty little note back saying so how's that print thing working out for you really yeah so I wrote back to him saying well it's quite, actually quite well my comic strip is in 125 130 newspapers my syndicate my editorial cartoons have been syndicated to over 400 newspapers and I just got named the editorial cartoons for the Chicago Tribune so pretty pretty damn good uh-huh. <laughs> and, and he never responded to that and then a few months ago, as you mentioned, he came out with a couple of books, actually, the What If book. Um, I think he came out with another. So I just wrote to him. So how's that print thing working out for you? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not so crucial. He didn't respond to that one. Either. So how does one – How do, did you wake up one morning and say, my goal is to become the editorial cartoonist for the Chicago Tribune? How, how does how does somebody start out in cartooning? You well, I fell into it. There's a lot of cartoonists who grew up want, drawing funny pictures. They knew what they wanted to do. You hear these stories all the time. You know, I I wanted to be a cartoonist since I was five. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I wasn't I wasn't that guy. Okay. I, I'd always like to draw. I'd always like to paint. I'd always like to create things. And I was in high school. I had visions of being a starving artist on the Rive Gauche in Paris and, you know, redefining painting as for the latter part of the 20th century. Okay. But then it struck me that starving sounds like it sucks. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, no, that's not it. So I was, went into, I was a pre-law major. Okay. With an idea of working in, in political campaigns. I'd worked on a number of them even at that young age and fell in love with the process and with campaigning. Um, but uh, I also noticed that the, when I was going to a community college, the cartoonist at the time on on the paper was uh, was was terrible. And okay. I walked so I walked in and said, "Hey, can I get us a shot?" And you know, it's a community college newspaper. They said, "We don't care." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I did, and I felt it was an epiphany. It was like literally the next week the the uh, cartoon ran, um, and I just thought, "This is what I have to do." And uh, interestingly, it's also the same the same period of time I met my wife. Okay. Who I'm, st- who I'm still married to. Um, Thirty six years later. Okay. Yes. Really? And, uh, so that's how it happened. I've kind of stumbled into it. And you've been married longer than I have. See. Okay. It can happen. Okay. <laughs> yeah. People always applaud me, and I, I have nothing to do with it. It's Janine, not oh. leaving, <laughs> that has everything to do with the success of my marriage. Oh, well, that's, but, um, good. that's good. That's good. Yeah. Well, you know, because it, it's, I mean, it, it, it is one of those things where you, you look at it and you think, this doesn't seem like the sort of, you, you look at people who are making a living as a cartoonist and you go, 
okay, people do make a living as a cartoonist. I mean, it, oh, that, sure. that happens. Um, but at the same time, the the idea it's 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 very much like my line of work. It's like, so did you like set out to be a Catholic <laughs> writer? And it's like, no, I nobody in their right mind would set out to be a Catholic writer. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I mean if you think about the, the the first one who wasn't didn't know the original source material who was struck off you know struck by lightning off a horse. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you should take something like that. Exactly. Um, exactly. No, I think it's fabulous, though. I mean, there's, yeah. So being a car, here's here's the end of the story. That's kind of funny, though. Is okay. So I make this decision. I said, this is what I have to do with my life. This is obviously a calling. And I went home to tell my parents that I'm not going to be a lawyer. <laughs> but that, cartoonist. I'm a big cartoonist. How cool is that? <laughs> okay. My dad, who was very creative himself, uh was very gracious and very supportive. My mother was, was not. So, um, you know, uh, the other thing though, is that doing what I do mm-hmm. and you do it as well on, on your Facebook post. So, and I wanted to ask you about this is that how do you reconcile being a Catholic, being a Christian and still being a harsh, uh, critic of this of, of society and I, I that's a conflict i have within myself all the time because my job essentially is to say not just the emperor has no clothes but he's a bleeping idiot for right. not having the clothes and so i had a conversation with uh, and this inspired me towards uh the priesthood of, of this was an episcopal priest at the time uh and i asked him about this I said, how how do i reconcile this this is very hard for me and he, got, he just looked at it, thought for a moment and he said I think God understands. And I thought, well, that's nice. Um, doesn't really answer the question. But uh, and I've had right. this discussion since converting to Catholicism about a decade ago. I go on this religious retreat at Manresa uh, Retreat House in South Louisiana, mm-hmm. which you should come to sometime. We'd love to okay. have you. Sure. And it's a three day vow of silence, which my wife's cousin's husband. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> my wife's cousin's husband. <laughs> It kept inviting me down, and I kept saying, I don't know if I want to do this. We, I went, and I knew that two things would happen. I would hate it, or I would love it. There wasn't going to be like one of these, yeah, I can take it or leave it. No, it was going to be one of those two things. I just, okay. I fell in love with it. It was uh, three days of instruction, prayer, and silence. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, especially, there were no cell phone towers anywhere close to it, so you really were cut off. Okay. You know, it's just, and it's an epiphany. And every year I look forward to it. The reason I'm coming back to my original point, which is during the reconciliation or just conference with the with the priests, I brought this same issue up with my with my Catholic priest friends, and their response was very similar. And I'm wondering. I know that you must wrestle with this. You seem like the kind of person who would that you say scurrilous things about people because they deserve it, and you put it in the context. I try not go to ahead. say scurrilous things about people, uh, uh, but uh, go ahead anyway. No, that, that was it. I wanted to know what your how you how you reconcile that. It, it's a struggle. Uh, I I'm uh, I, I I recognize that what the gospel calls us to is to speak the truth in love. Uh, I, I'm better at the the truth part than the love part, <laughs> especially when it's. When it's dealing with um, things that I really regard as profoundly despicable. I mean, as worthy of the everlasting fires of hell, despicable. Uh, so on our, you know, the, the podcast that we just recorded, I was, you know, I was talking about, you know, listening to people who gloat 
gloat over the deportation of veterans who have fought for this country. And my response to them is, do you not fear God? Do you not realize that uh, gloating over that kind of misfortune to somebody who has put their ass on the line for you uh, is, you know, if there's anything that is worthy of damnation, it's that. And I... I look at that and I and I uh it's very difficult for me to speak to such people uh without contempt and yet I know that contempt is from the devil it, that is not of God contempt is not from God ever uh and so it's that's a struggle for me uh and I don't know what to do but at the same time I don't know uh, there's a passage in Jeremiah where Jeremiah says, I, he basically says, if I, ho- I, I get weary holding it in, I can't, not, <laughs> I can't not say something, you know? Well, and that's exactly what I'm going, you know, it's, I, I have this dialogue and I'm actually, I'm lucky that I have the comic strip as, as the, as a conduit for thoughts like that. This editorial right. cartoons are much blunter and, you know, a single issue. Right. But on the street, and I get called on it quite a bit by other Christians in, in comments on As Facebook or Drew. And I should be. Right. I frankly, I think I, and it's, that is my, that is my internal struggle. My sins, uh, which are legion is, is everybody's, but my, my particular sin is pride, I think. Mm-hmm. And a certitude that I think some people would probably find galling. And I, I can't, and oftentimes I don't blame them because I find it galling too, but, you know, uh, right. but, but wrestling with the idea that as a Christian, I'm supposed to be instructive. I'm supposed to be forgiving. I'm supposed to be loving. Right. And a lot of times I'm just pissed off. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, well, you're in the right job. I mean, yeah. if you're going to be an editorial cartoonist, that's, that's, it's a handy, it's who wants to read a cartoon, you know, where it's just like, everything's fine. Yeah, everything's just Jake. Thank I'm sure Jake. everyone's doing the best they can do. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> so there is that struggle, uh, you know, to um, – yeah, to – and you know, I take seriously uh, the fact that by virtue of our baptism, we're called to be prophet, priest, and king. Uh, and those, you know, those offices are real for all the baptized. That's just part of our job. And so when you see something that's wrong, I think there is a place, uh, where you have to speak at the same time. You can't speak about everything all the time. Always. I had somebody the other day I, I was remarking, I forget, I was remarking on something, um, I, I think I was talking about uh, discover. Oh yeah, that was it. I was talking about. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to old age theater. Yes, host. yes. Uh, I, was, I was. I was. remarking on. You know, somebody was talking about. You know, somebody had had this thing that was sort of this the history of black people in America. Right. It was like a 250 years of 
slavery and then you know a century and a half of jim crow and then finally you get this they they ended jim crow with um brown versus the board of education i would end jim crow with the civil rights act and it's a soft yeah. ending and um and so i was remarking on this and then saying you know the the people who look at that history and say uh, to black people, get over it. It's history, you know. Uh, live in the present are the same people who say we must not get rid of Confederate statues because our history is so <laughs> precious to us, you know. And the only reason those statues were put up was to reinforce Jim Crow. And uh, oh so yeah, no, so yeah, being having lived and worked in the South for years, yeah, it was a big, it was a big fat screw you to. The people. To no, absolutely. Vote. Yeah. So anyway, I was remarking on this, and then somebody, somebody was writing me from Australia. Oddly enough, somebody was writing me from Australia, saying, you know, I noticed that you're not talking about slavery in China. You know, and I'm like, well, yes, that's <laughs> this was a post about one thing, not about everything in the world, right? And it's somebody. Somebody else chimed in and said, you just posted this in order to deflect from the entire issue of the penguin egg black market. <laughs> he was joking, right? Oh, no, no, I do. I'm just kidding. Let's, let's clear this up now. Did you? <laughs> I said, yes. Whenever I post about something, it's ordered. It's in order to deflect from everything else that I'm not posting about right now, and uh, that's always my, my my ulterior motive. When I talk about one thing, it's in order to avoid talking about everything else in the world. Well, that's the reason I got in touch with you too, is because recently, and this guy is a friend, but he still it makes me crazy. The, and you and you called him on it because I called him on it. It's the what what about people mm, right you know, so you're talking about you know uh, uh the uh, sunny delight or whatever the porn star's name was that uh president trump had the affair with uh and a uh, friend says well what about blah blah blah, blah clinton and blah, blah. i'm going <laughs> what about she didn't clinton, win right? yes she didn't win obama's no longer president these right. are what move on yeah, so and that's my one of my principal, really my principal beef with um, uh, the Christian right uh, since the election. I get fine. I get it. It was a terrible choice. On you know on November eighth, two thousand sixteen, we had a lousy choice. And if you felt that you needed to vote for trump because you didn't want hillary fine i get it i didn't vote for either of them but you know uh uh if you felt you needed to do that then fine but here's the thing the moment that he won that election you now own your vote you are responsible for the fact that that guy is president and Every time he does something despicable or tells a lie, uh, your responsibility is to confront that lie, to confront that despicable act, and what uh, what is consistently being done instead. And I and I warned that this was going to happen when the election took place. People said, "Well, we're going to hold his feet to the fire." Baloney! 
What you're going to do for the rest of his administration is rationalize your vote. You're going to have to say, well, you know, I did this because of, you know, Hillary. And, and that's what's been happening. So every time Trump tells a liar, does something despicable, what in fact happens is the people who voted for him don't hold him responsible. Instead, they say, but Hillary, but Obama. But yeah. Bill Clinton was a sex predator. And my response is, you're damn right Bill Clinton was a sex predator. He's a rapist. I totally believe Juanita Broderick. I always have. And I think that, you know, especially in the era of Me Too, you know, I'm fine with saying that Bill Clinton belongs behind bars as a sex predator. But you know what? So does Donald Trump. And the people that say, but Bill Clinton... Never say, and Donald Trump is a sex predator too. Instead, yeah. what they do is, oh, wow, it's locker room talk. And besides, all 20 of his victims are all liars. <laughs> yeah. On, on the locker room talk thing, I mean, I go to a gym um, and I've been going to gyms for decades. I always say this. Yes, there are guys who talk like that in the locker room. They were never the guys I hung out with. Yeah, I found them because I found them grotesque. Right, of course. Yeah, so, I mean that was my, my my response was I've been in a lot of locker rooms. Most guys don't talk that way, and the ones who do, you kind of you know you put your clothes on real fast and you're gone, man. Yeah, you make sure the next time yeah. your lockers like at least one yeah. or two rows away. Ew, yeah. You, yeah, know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, oh, thank God, we're more alike than I thought. Wow. Weird. Yeah. Um, let me ask you something. I I, I don't know if this is in the purview of the, of the podcast, but it's something that, um, again, I struggle with because you mentioned, you touched on it earlier and that is, are you a, um, are you an evangelical for, for the gospel, for Christ? Do you always have to be preaching? And my point is I find that to be unseemly, Mm -hmm. uh, having lived and worked in the South, how often I was preached to and, you know, by people who, shouldn't have been, but they were. Mm-hmm. As a Catholic and as a Christian, I find that by setting the example is much more important. If I'm asked, I'll tell them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my life is really, really good. You know, I have a wonderful, strong marriage. I have two great kids. Um, it was things like, um, you know, I didn't have to state, for instance, I was, I was, I don't know if you, I think you did read the piece years ago I wrote called uh, uh, The Beatings Never Really Stop. And it was a very self-revelatory, self mm-hmm. Uh, autobiographical piece about how I was abused as physically abused as a kid Mm -hmm. and how I never mentioned this to very many people, but I made a solemn vow to myself and to my God that I was never going to strike my kids, period. That means no spanking, no nothing, never, ever. Mm -hmm. And I was, there were times when I really wanted to, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I never did. Mm -hmm. And guess what? I have two really spectacular kids who are in their, you know, one's 31, one's 29. And they're respectful, they're honest, they're dutiful, yeah. they're good people. Yeah, And um, good job. Well, thanks. I think their mother had more to do with it than me. And uh, she never struck them either, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but I guess my very long point, maybe too long, uh, is this, that by setting an example as a Christian, I feel that that's more powerful than if I'm every five minutes saying, well, you know what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, am I wrong in this? Because no, I think you're right. I am. No, I think you're right. Um, I, 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 I'm a, <laughs> I'm a Platonist, uh, okay. not in the sense that I'm. I have some worked out theory of Plato, 
but in the sense that in my heart of hearts, I deeply believe that if I talk at you long enough, you will finally capitulate to my viewpoint. <laughs> 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 and uh, uh, which is stupid. I know that that's stupid. And uh, well, but it is. I mean, you know, it's just you know the 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 fatal flaw of Platonism uh, is that it doesn't it doesn't really take seriously original sin. It doesn't recognize the fact that there's just something wrong with us uh, and that in some places no amount of education and yakking at you is going to fix that. And I I don't... That is quitter talk, man. (laughs) (laughs) For me. And so I I am one of those people that just thinks that if if I just talk at you a long time uh, and just beat you <laughs> with enough well, language, finally you will listen to me. Uh, and that's but you don't term. do this when, I mean, if someone, if a friend comes to me with a very serious problem, mm-hmm. um, then I'll say that, you know, prayer is a remarkable tool and incredibly healing. Right, yeah. And faith um Having someone love you for you is very rare in life, and yeah. and not only not only sees everything you are, but forgives the bad parts. Mm-hmm. Um, is 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 an extraordinary gift that you right. can give to someone else. I push that softly. I don't because I want them to come back and hear it again. So in the uh, Mark Shea uh, way of doing things, maybe it's my way of of talking them until they accept my way of, of thinking because I'll get this never takes the first time. This advice never works the first time ever. Uh, so they'll go back and there, and it could be trouble or they're seeing someone they shouldn't be seeing or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Uh, right. Along those lines, something that's, that is important in this, especially in a marriage where there's kids involved. I am deaf on like, don't do this. Uh, you know, it's wrong. I would pray long and hard about it and see what answer comes back to you. Mm-hmm. They don't. <laughs> you know, because being with so-and-so feels so darn good. Right. Uh, but then you come back and say, well, okay, so, um, you know, the, uh, so his, you know, the spouse found out about this. So it's really, so how's that making you feel? Bad. Does this surprise you in any way, shape, or form? <laughs> and if it does, then, you know, you should think about running for president, apparently. Um, <laughs> You'll win. But, uh, but I think the argument comes around because the practical of it, and, and people think that the spiritual is somehow separate from the practical or the, you know, your everyday existence, and it simply isn't. Yeah. Um, the fact is that if you take the time to pray, uh, John Mahoney passed away recently. He was the actor. He lived here in Chicago. He played oh, yeah. the father in Frasier. Yeah. And he said that he prayed. He was Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and he prayed, he said, uh, dozens of times a day. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that what a weird – and he had – when he passed away, um, every single person said what a remarkable person he was. Yeah. And in one, and in one of the few really in-depth, he was very, very private. And in an in-depth interview he had given, he mentions that his, his faith is what, what keeps him going. Yeah. And what gives him that grace that when he meets someone, to treat them humanely, to be kind, and, you know, to always be kind. Yeah. Um, 
And so we kind of at this point in this in our national life, I'm not sure I don't travel enough to know that's in the world, but I know in our national life and um, <laughs> the ADDs kicking in. Sorry. Squirrel. <laughs> um, <laughs> Where? In the, and, <laughs> there. And okay. we're on video so we can see each other okay. uh, in, in our um, in our national life. The idea and you speak to this. And this is one of the things I love about your work is you talk about grace. You talk about empathy uh, for the other. Um, and the other today is immigrants and those dirty, rotten, horrible immigrants. And right. you just talked about it earlier about immigrants who served our nation and the armed forces and they come back and they get deported anyway. And that's there's something grotesquely inhuman about that, let alone unchristian. Right. I don't know how you turn this. And I have to and I'd love to know your thoughts on this because I swing both wildly on this question mm -hmm. of whether or not we can come back mm -hmm. to being a country that we're in this together. Mm -hmm. We're going to fix this together. Um, should we have, you know, is there any common sense on things like immigration as a capitalist? I can tell you that immigration is good. Immigration builds markets, injects capital into an economy, which funds innovation. These are three very good things as a right. capitalist, as a human, I can tell you that, uh, my, three of my four grandparents came to this country. They were not born here and did not speak English as a first language. Okay. Um, I'm wondering if we can come back to that level, any kind of equanimity in our national conscience. I, I think that it's possible. Uh, the, the U.S. Has, has swung wildly on this pendulum in the past. You know, 100 years ago, it was, it was my Mick ancestors and uh, the, you know, the Italians who were the huge men and the Jews, a uh, huge menace. To America, you know, and and the the Catholics were coming in, you know. I mean, one of the great, you know, your uh, supreme ancestor, um, Thomas Nast. Yes. Uh, oh God. <laughs> great. He was a well. He's an interesting. He's an interesting character. He's a, he's he's the he's the original great political cartoonist of, oh, yes. of, the yeah. of the 19th century. He was a passionate reformer. He lived in, in New York. Uh, he was the guy more than anybody. Uh, he made tremendous war on the, uh, on Tammany hall and the great, you know, corrupt political systems. Uh, it, you know, Boston asked, uh, uh, once remarked, you know that uh, my readers, or, you know my my constituents, uh, most of them can't read. He said, but damn it, they can they can look at pictures, they can see these cartoons, and so yeah. he really hated Thomas Nast, you know. Uh, and in fact, when he uh, took it on the lamb uh, and tried to uh, escape the country with a with a ton of money, uh, he was identified because he was recognized from Thomas Nast cartoons. <laughs> And uh, I know where you're going with this. Go, keep on. But what's also interesting about Nast is that Nast was a passionate anti-Catholic. He hated Catholics. And there's famous cartoons that he did, you know, of the, oh, yeah. you know, the Bishops as crocodile. Yeah, bishops as crocodiles coming in, and you know, monstrous Catholics coming in. He was a he was a Dutchman, you know, Protestant Dutchman, and uh, no, he was German. Actually, he was German. Oh, he was. I thought he was. I thought he was oh, Dutch. Yeah. I know it's weird to hear a German have serious qualms with uh, 
religious minorities, but there it is. <laughs> and so, you know, a um, uh, hundred years ago, I mean, this is the great irony. It was, it was, it was us Catholics. Oh, well, also not just Catholics, but he hated, he hated, hated, hated the Irish so much. Every time he depicted the Irish, he drew them as monkeys with clay pipes. Really? Oh yeah. Okay, oh, I, I've not seen his Irish cartoons. Okay. Oh God, yeah. No, he he he, uh, he was again. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and you know, and so uh, I, I I look at this pattern. This is a pattern that's played out repeatedly. A wave of immigrants will come to the United States, and the people who I I live here in in, uh, in Seattle. Seattle is. Um, populated by people who came here to get away from whatever was east uh and uh, uh they they came here i was born here i'm the only member of my family who was born in washington state and uh people come here you know like from california and Seattleites are like the New Englanders of the West Coast. Like, uh, get out of our state. You're, a, you know, you're new here. We don't want you here. And I'm like, you just came here five years ago, dude. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> locals only, man. Locals only, you know? And so and it's like, I'm the only person that I know that was born here. And so... um. <laughs> I, I'm watching this going on now. You know, uh, 10 years ago, the Great Panic was you, – you might remember this. The Great Panic was demographic winter. We are facing demographic winter, Scott. The the Muslims are outbreeding us. Oh, yeah. It's because of our – it's because of our contraceptive culture. We have to do something about this because we are not replacing ourselves. And so if – we don't do something. The Muslims are just going to swamp us because they're just having babies all over the place. And we need to do Christians need to start reproducing. That was the big thing 10 years ago. So, OK, great. Here come 20 million Christians, you know, from south of the border. Yeah. Replacing our population. Well, not those kinds of Christians, if you catch no. my meaning, if you get my drift. <laughs> so, you know, lackey. Yeah, well, yeah, first of all, yeah, not Catholic, but also not brown. We right. don't want those kinds of Christians. And so the issue was never really, of course, it was never about demographic winter and Christian versus Muslim. This is all about race. Yes. Uh, and um, I, 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 I look at that, I look at that kind of thing, you know, and just go, we've done this dance before. We did it a hundred years ago uh, with immigrants coming from Southeast Europe, and now we're doing it uh, with immigrants coming from south of the border. Um, and you know, when I look at things like DACA, I look at these kids who are here through no fault of their own. They were brought here by their parents. They can't become citizens because our weird system doesn't allow them to become citizens. And so what are they going to do? Well, what we've decided to do is hold them hostage to a border wall, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, nothing says love like taking people hostage. <laughs> so I, well, I, you know, arg. 
No, it's it's incredibly frustrating, incredibly unchristian in my view. Yeah. And uh, and I believe in the view of my church because I'm I'm a lector at my church, and during the intentions that always comes up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, God bless my priest for putting that in there. Um, yeah. And so yeah, as, as I don't know where this goes. I mean, I'm talking to. I was on a uh, I'm a regular on talk radio down in Birmingham, Alabama, where I worked and lived for many many years. Mm-hmm. And you know, he talked about. It, I, and I was also on a podcast here by one of our columnists, a first-generation American, which makes this even more ironic and laughable than I care to admit. But he was like, I said, I'm for immigration. I'm actually for open borders. Right. Because I'm a libertarian who believes in these things and believes right. that it's good for the economy. He says, well, even chain migration? I go, and here's the thing. Families? <laughs> the guy I was talking to, his father followed his brother to the United States. That's how he got here. Mm-hmm. I'm going – no self-awareness. Right? I'm sorry. It, it, my my brain hurts even now just talking about it. Going the irony, the idea that you know we talked on my podcast earlier about the death penalty versus abortion mm-hmm. that you can be for one and against the other is preposterous. Mm-hmm. You either think it's okay to kill a human being, but you, and you do, or you don't. You know, my God tells me that it's His job, not mine. Right. Really, pretty basic stuff. Um, right. So the same holds true for where we are. The immigrant has become the other. Mm-hmm. It seems to be like you look at the polls, if they are to be believed, and uh, this president's approval rating is creeping forward. It's coming up on 50 percent as wow. of right now, as of um, you know February 12th, right. 2018. Um, this is a guy who is all about the other. Right. You know, it's all about um, all those women, you know, the liberated women, Peshaw. It's all about those brown people who oh, keep them away. Yeah. Um, it's all. And I. that's a terrible way to run a culture, let alone a country. Right. In my um, not so humble opinion. Well, <laughs> it's 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 a pattern that's played out throughout American history. You know, one of the things that. Uh, uh, well, one of the things that. Uh, <laughs> uh, the the ruling classes figured out a long time ago. Linda Johnson summed this up really nicely. He was talking about um, uh, this is uh, during the time of the Civil Rights Act, and one of the things that uh, Republicans started figuring out was that if Democrats supported the Civil Rights Act, um, they could they could clean up on the Dixiecrat vote, and and they did uh, in '68 and and onward. You know, and and Johnson uh, uh, said, I I forget the exact quote, but he he said, I'll tell you what's at the bottom of it. If you can convince the lowest white man that he is better than the best colored man, he said, uh, you can not only pick his pockets, but he will empty his pockets for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that has been absolutely true throughout throughout American history that. That politics of envy, that as long as I can spite the guy that I think is poorer than me, that that's more important to me than uh, uh, than improving my own life. My own life, and it really is. It that's that is the sin of envy. There, people think of envy as envying somebody who's better off than you, but it really is possible to envy somebody who's worse off than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because envy, there's a distinction between here's a little Catholic moral theology for you. Uh, there's a distinction <laughs> between jealousy and envy. Jealousy looks across the street at the neighbor's new car and says, 
I have to have a car like that. Uh, and so I'm going to go out there. I'm going to work my butt off. And I'm, I am just as good as that guy. And I'm going to get that car uh, so that I can be equal to that guy. That's jealousy. It's, it's, there's still a real quality of sin there. Uh, but at least at the end of the day, you've improved yourself in some way. Envy looks across the street at the neighbor's new car and waits until it's dark and then goes out and keys the car and slashes the tires and then goes back in the house and does nothing to improve itself. It's just spite against <laughs> that other person. Uh, and you can, you can do the same thing. You know, it, was, uh, it wasn't the extremely well-off, you know, who burnt crosses and you know no. lynch black people it was it was it was the it was the poor whites who did that and um because uh you know at least i'm not them you know yeah well, <laughs> at least that's i'm not keep, those guys that's why i kept trying to explain to janine my wife who was born and raised in southern california when we moved to the south why would people think this why in the world would you do this what and i said because and described it, and you, you described it beautifully, far better than I did. Um, and it, it's a weird politic, coming from the South particularly, and having the Roy Moore types, and believe me, there are a lot of those mm -hmm. down there. Um, it was, um, I, 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 it does not give me hope for the future, and, but guys like you and talking about this stuff um, and talking to people who don't have our platform and maybe don't have our vehemence or the Mm -hmm. It's hard for them to stand up mm -hmm. and be counted and say something, but they believe that this country should be better and can be better. Um, I think it can be. I mean, there's always hope, you know, and, and this is one of the things that the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be better than we are. Uh, and so, you know, it is possible for, and the American people have shown that throughout their history too. Yes, sure. You know, we've got a long history of Jim Crow and all kinds of other things that we've done, but you know, um, we're also, uh, the people that, uh, in the depths of the depression, uh, created a social safety net. Uh, we're the people who, you know, faced with, Hitler and Stalin did not become Hitler and Stalin in order to defeat them. Uh, and yeah. that, that really is, it really is possible. So, you know, uh, Lincoln was right to appeal to the better angels of our nature that, that, that can be done. It's never done perfectly, you know, and the civil war itself is an example of a war that was not fought perfectly. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, you know, we could have, uh, you know, after look at World War II, for example, after World War II, we could have really doubled down on what was done after World War One, and say, you know, we crushed, we crushed you after World War One, and now we're really going to crush you after <laughs> World War Two. But instead, what we did was we. We learned our lesson from World War One and said, you know what, perhaps if we treat the Germans with mercy rather than smash them flat and treat the Japanese with mercy rather than crush them, um, uh, you know, we can create a better world. And we did that. And, and so I think that those things are possible and that it's still possible for us today. Uh, 
you know, we're in a, we're definitely in a downswing, I think. Um, but it's consoling to me still to realize that um, just a little over a third of just of the electorate, which is not the population, it's only the electorate, you know, thinks that a man like Donald Trump is awesome. Um, yeah, but the, the rest Democrats, of us don't, you know. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I mean, you we mentioned that uh, I, I didn't run, I didn't vote for either Hillary or or Donald. Yeah. Um, in fact, I endorsed uh, in the Strip, and the Chicago Tribune also endorsed uh, uh, Gary Johnson. Oh, okay. The, the Libertarian candidate for president, okay. along with the, oh gosh, what was his name from Massachusetts? Uh, the, the Weld, William Weld, mm-hmm. for vice president, it was a hell of a ticket. Um, but they didn't have anyway. Um, so I, I hope you're right, but I'm looking at a Democratic Party that doesn't seem to stand for a hell of a lot. It doesn't know what it stands for. And hate, hate and anger is not the best best way to win elections. Right. Yeah, I, I don't know what they're going to do. Um, you know, they're it's obvious they're kind of casting around, and I you know I look at you know it's like what was it? Um, uh, Oprah gave her speech, you know, at the golden globes and it was like you know within like 15 minutes on the internet all of a sudden she was like it's a done deal she's the next president yeah. <laughs> it's like, well or not you know maybe it was just a it was i mean it was a barn burner of a speech but no let's not make her president of the united states that's just a bad idea and then you know the next thing was um it, before the state of the union you know, they're like, it's Joe Kennedy the third. He's our next yeah. president. It's like, well, well until I start frothing and drooling. That was- yeah, it's like, well, okay, perhaps you should at least wait until he said something before you. Well, and the other thing is that I, he's already been elected. You know. Well, and the other thing is that oftentimes it's a weird dichotomy that the uh, elections that I remember. And this is old man talk. I get that. But it used to I think in large part, this is this was true. You had, you know, a party, the Democratic Party in 1976 is a good example. Mm. You know, they had just four years before nominated an extremely liberal nominee, George McGovern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they got their, you know, they got their clocks cleaned by a criminal. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and. Yeah, they went back to the drawing board and said, okay, here's here's what we have to do. You know, here's what will win. Right. Um, and with Ronald Reagan, the same thing in this in the 88, or rather than the 92 election, this followed the Dukakis four years before. Rather than have a liberal East Coaster, we're going to have someone who's a more centrist Democrat, probably from the southern state, and you get Bill Clinton and you win. Right. I don't think Democrats are looking at what's what lost. What lost for them was a status – liar in Hillary Clinton. Right. And so there's no appeal for the left. There's no appeal for, and she played, you know, I'm having this debate still with a lot of my liberal friends about um, identity politics, which are divisive on, divisive on the face of it. That's what they are. Right. Uh, I'm this, but which means if I'm that, you must oppose that. You know, you're opposed to that. Yeah. Um, All that being said, you should have the policy first and then find the candidates or candidates that fit that policy. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, it's weird talking to younger people about 
politics and how people 30 and younger think socialism is just grand. Mm-hmm. And you're going, no, it's <laughs> not. It But they, you know, it sounds good on paper. Well, they know they're getting screwed is, is the thing. They are. They they're perfectly aware of the fact. I mean, all they got to do is look at their school loans and they know they're getting screwed. And they're, you know, they, they're watching wages flatline for the last 30 years. They get it. They know that. Uh, and they just watch them. You know, they just watch this pack of predators hand a trillion and a half bucks of their money to the one percent. Yeah. And, well, and, me, uh, and I can talk about economics and that's part of another yeah, podcast. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it, yeah, it's, it's you know, the, the, we're, we're living in a time right now where uh, the, you know, the things fall, fall apart. The center cannot hold, uh, you know, as a Catholic, I'm I'm looking always to the tradition. That's always my question is the tradition. What does the tradition say? And how do we evangelize? That's that's why Pope Francis means so much to me. I have never understood people who say that Pope Francis confuses them. I think Pope Francis is an open book. Yeah. I have never understood any of the confusion that people have about him. What confusion are they having? Well, I think what they're confused about, the people who say that they're confused about Pope Francis, I think what's confusing them is that they entered into a contract with the church that the church never made. And the contract was the church will affirm my views as an American conservative. It will tell me I'm great as long as I'm pro-life. I can do whatever else I like. I can support whatever else I want. And as long as that happens, then everything's great. And what Francis did was he came along. He didn't say anything different from his predecessors because his predecessors never made that bargain. This was a bargain that American conservative Catholics made unilaterally and thought that the church agreed to it. And then Francis came along and said, you know, you need to believe and profess everything that the church says, not just the parts that you like. So, you know, unjust war, it turns out, is wrong. Uh, torture, it turns out, is wrong. Contempt for the, the least of these is wrong. Uh, and so when I look at Francis, it, people ask me, what's he saying? I say, you can sum up the entire papacy of Francis in eight words. He has preached good news to the poor. That is the Franciscan papacy. It's all about evangelization. It's all about the least of these. And this is a guy who comes from the third world and who understands what American policies have done to people in the third world. This is a guy who survived the dirty wars. Uh, this is a guy who has he spent his whole life in favelas, you know, talking to Jose Sixpack, you know, uh, uh, sitting around the the dinner table, you know, and um, uh, so he gets that. And that's why he's such an enormous threat to, you know, an American conservative Catholicism that is suckled on Fox News. 
uh, and and said, you know, you can basically just agree with everything that Fox News says and go to mass and wear a precious feet pin and you're good. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and Francis is a threat to all of that. And uh, and yet everything that he says is what the church has always said. You know, yeah, he, he really hasn't been radical. I mean, truly. Yeah. No, he's he's he, in what he said. Right. He, well, radical in the sense of rooted, sure, you know, and rooted in the tradition, you know. So anyway, he that that when I look at Francis, he's always been an open book to me. I've never understood the confusion, uh, and a lot of oh, the I stuff think you that, have. You just said you 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 get it. You understand. Well, it's not so much that. I, I think his critics can't understand him. It's that they don't want to understand it. There's a yeah. there's a wonderful passage in um, um, the Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis, where uh, they wind up going to Narnia. Uncle Andrew, uh, the magician, goes to with the with the kids to Narnia, uh, and they meet all these talking animals, and the and uh, and Andrew, Uncle Andrew, can't except that there are talking animals. Uh, and so he winds up making himself believe that these animals can't talk. And Lewis remarks uh, of Uncle Andrew, he says, the trouble about, make tr uh, about uh, making yourself stupider than you really are is that you can often succeed. <laughs> uh, and that's... Uh, that's often been my impression about people who tell themselves that they don't understand what Francis is talking about, um, you know, and so wind up, you know, reading Laudato Si, for example, as some kind of tract on Gaia worship. And it's like, this is nothing new. Yeah. <laughs> this is, just, you know, stuff that the church has been saying since forever. What do you mean Gaia worship? <laughs> Where are you getting that from? Yeah. Well, I, you know, and we've had popes. The last three popes have been, um, you know, John Paul II was the pope we needed at that time. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Twentieth century pope, which we yes. weirdly did not have until that time. Yeah. Uh, and his message upon his coronation uh, or ascension to the papacy was, "Be not afraid," which yes. was just a glorious and perfect thing to say. Yeah. Benedict, I don't think was I, I, I did not care for him as I mean, he was fine. And mm -hmm. we, we can debate that. But mm -hmm. but Francis is the pope we need now. Pope. Yeah. He is the he is the pope we need now who mm -hmm. will continually remind us of the grace that we have within us and that we need to exercise. <laughs> I was talking with a friend of mine. I said, you know, uh, uh, John Paul's, you know, uh, when he was when he was. Uh, uh, elevated to the papacy, his, his op the opening words of his papacy were "Be not afraid." Uh, you know, and and the message of you know uh, <laughs> contemporary culture is "Be afraid, be very afraid <laughs> <laughs> of everything of and everyone." Everything, you know. But uh, well, listen, I want to. Uh, uh, we, I've, I have, I have taken up enough of your time, but I want to thank you for being on. I want to tell people they can find your work. All, all they got to do is just go to the Chicago Tribune website to find your editorial cartoons. Where do they go to the find Prickly City? Well, they can go to chicagotribune.com slash Stantis, S-T-A-N-T-I-S. 
Or they can go to gocomics.com slash pricklycity, one word. And my editorial cartoons are there as well. They ask you to register, and it's free. And you can actually sign up for our newsletter, and you can pick what cartoons you want sent to you on a daily basis. It's it's kind of awesome, That's actually. Pretty cool. So That's pretty cool. And you know, cl- click the little heart on then Prickly City. That'd be you know makes me money. So you know. Yay. Oh well. Okay. <laughs> Everyone, <laughs> so give Scott Stantis money. And, or some love. Well, g- give him money. some. Well, yeah, love and yeah. money are. You know, to one form of love is money. Um, so it's, sure, it's let's go with that. Well, you're not supposed to say things like that. That sounds terribly worldly. But you know, when you don't have any money and somebody gives you money, it's pretty yes. nice. You know. <laughs> so, and Mark, thanks for being on my podcast today. It's the Perkley Podcast. And if if you want to hear the first half of this conversation, you can go to WGN Plus, and you can find the Perkley Podcast there. Fantastic. All right. I want to thank you so much for being on the show today, Scott Stantis. You guys have been listening to Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Mark Shea, and we will be back again very soon with another podcast. Until then, have a good Lent. Bye. Amen. Amen.